Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, December 5th, 2021. We had a big week in our polylog world. Yeah, big week. We were featured on All Things Considered. Yeah, so if you didn't catch that, just do a quick Google search on polylog and All Things Considered, and you'll see a quick little segment that they did on us about hitting 250 episodes. We were one of the things considered. (laughs) One of the many. One of the things in a day you could consider, yeah. Every Sunday morning, politicians and public figures meet the press or face the nation, discuss this week, appear on Fox News Sunday. And every week, one husband and wife duo watches all the political talk shows and makes a podcast about them. Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows. That's Naomi Soto. She and her co-host husband, Brendan Steidel, have produced Polylog, a combination of politics and dialogue, every week week since 2017. Yeah, so we were super excited by that, super, you know, appreciative to the reporters and folks who put it together. Absolutely. We thought it was very well done. Yeah, it was it was great to kind of explore the conversation around media criticism more broadly. Absolutely. And we look That's forward to doing it in the future. Maybe right now. Maybe. So uh, we also wanted to say it didn't make it into the actual piece, but we did want to thank our listeners. We have the best listeners. Yes. We did that in the interview, but it didn't make the cut, I guess. But yes, thank you to all of our incredible listeners who keep us going every week. Yeah. And we just have listeners who, you know, it's so awesome to think of and get messages of all the different places you guys take us to. Yes. <laughs> There's been people on kind of missions in the South Pacific and they follow our show to kind of keep up with the news back home to people who work the graveyard shift and listen on their, you know, headphones while they're, you know, working their job and people on their commutes and, and everything in between. And so it's so great the idea that thoughtful, robust media criticism, media commentary is kind of happening in all those different times and places. And we exactly and we're trying to take it even further. That's right. We're looking forward in the new year to starting up a newsletter. So if you have an opportunity, check out the website that's polylog.com. And there will be a little spot for you to put your email address in and we'll start sending that out in January, which we're looking forward to. Absolutely. Let's get to the show. Big show today. Took us a very long time to put it together, longer than usual, but it's big topics. Yeah, so I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Jake Tapper, and Face the Nation, which was hosted by Margaret Brennan. I looked you at, look at yeah, I looked at Fox News Sunday, hosted by Chris Wallace, who was out in Simi Valley, California, just a few hours from here at the Reagan Library. 
which there was like the Reagan National Defense Forum he was a part of and discussing. Chris Wallace loves coming to California. Let's be real. He, a couple <laughs> weeks ago, he was at, the, I think, the Hoover Institute in the Bay Area. He's like a California hey, Republican. It's nice weather it right is. now it's very versus nice right DC. Now. And I know New York was in the 40s today. That's right. And then I took a look at Meet the Press, hosted by Chuck Todd. And I looked at This Week, hosted by Martha Raddatz. And almost all of them were talking about abortion, the Supreme Court, as well as COVID and Omicron. Yeah, there was a couple other kind of random segments and topics, but those were the biggies. Yeah, like talking about national defense because Wallace was there. And Jake Tapper's rant about China because he loves a good rant. But Naomi, let's begin as we always do. Quality questionable. Was there a quality or questionable moment that stood out for you this week? So I have an abysmal moment. Beyond questionable. Oh, wow. You mentioned, Brendan, that most of the shows spent a good amount of their time talking about the abortion case that went to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. There was one show that did not say anything about abortion. How is that even possible? That's my question, exactly. So on Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan mentioned it zero, zero <gasps> times. Not unbelievable not even a mention of abortion or the supreme court was this a rerun did they just run another episode (laughs) you know chris wallace likes doing reruns on power player of the week but doing a whole rerun of a whole show would be pretty bad no it was all about omicron all of it because we know so So much much, so much about it yeah so it was just, just not a word And then State of the Union did have an interview, but just one interview on abortion. And it was with a politician who is very, you know, anti-choice. It's the governor of Mississippi, who in Mississippi is very important this week as it kind of defended its proposed law at the Supreme Court. There was no legal panel, no experts, no pro-choice advocates. Wow. Um, Wow. So not great. Those are the two shows you looked at. Yes. Wow. Well, no wonder I noticed that you have fewer clips to discuss because there were literally fewer discussions. Yes. I have a lot to say. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> Lots. Good. I know you're worried. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> well, did you have a quality or questionable or an abysmal like mine? Well, this is this is questionable. It, it shades towards the abysmal. And it's similar to what you're saying because it's structural, really. This is about the structure of the show, as you're mentioning, Naomi. Another structural problem makes it to the questionable column today, and that is Fox News Sunday, as I mentioned, was at the Reagan Presidential Library for the Reagan National Defense Forum. So, first of all, good for them, right? It's nice to see a show get out of the studio for an event that's not totally dictated by the latest news. That's okay. That's that's good to do because sometimes there are really important topics that don't happen to be the hot topic of the week, but really demand our attention. So good for them. But if you're going to cover something that isn't the latest news, you have to do a better job of it. Like, look at this. This is one of the earliest discussions that was on the show. And this was a joint interview that Chris Wallace had with Republican Senator Joni Ernst and Michelle Flournay, who served on the National Security Council under Obama. What what kind of combination is this? They're talking about national security issues. You have a Republican senator, and then you have an expert on national security. She was the former U.S. Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, this Michelle Flournoy. So 
This is completely like you're combining a subject matter expert with a partisan elected official. Ernst should not be treated as a subject matter expert. She is a partisan. And she has a very clear partisan perspective on all things, including the first question, which was about Biden. Earlier here at the Reagan Defense Forum, I sat down with Republican Senator Joni Ernst, the first female combat veteran elected to the Senate, who's now a member of the Armed Services Committee. And also Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense under President Obama. And we began with a growing crisis on Ukraine's border. Senator Michelle, welcome to Fox News Sunday. Thank you very much. Uh, Senator, what do you think Vladimir Putin is up to here? Do you really think that he intends to invade Ukraine? And, and what should President Biden tell him on Tuesday? I mean, we're not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Yes, she's going to have a partisan position on Biden's decisions in national security. So that's okay if you want to have a bunch of partisans on, but then have a Democratic partisan official. And then Flournoy, she should not be treated as this expert in the Democratic position of political maneuvering. She is a subject matter expert. So this is just completely unbalanced. The discussion was unbalanced. And you were setting it up from the beginning to be a failure, which is really disappointing. You just got to pick. Do you want to have a subject matter expert discussion or do you want to have a discussion about different political partisan positions? One or the other. You, you can't achieve it on the same panel doesn't make any sense. Then, later in the show, they chose for their panel, what Fox News calls its Sunday group, they chose to invite the following individuals as their panelists. It's time now for our Sunday group here in Simi Valley. GOP strategist Carl Rove and Fox News national security correspondent Jennifer Griffin. Welcome. Thank you. That's it. That's it. Those two people. That's their panel. GOP strategist Carl Rove and a correspondent on national security for Fox News. No progressive voice, no democratic voice, no democratic strategist, no journalist with a broader portfolio of issues that they cover. And yet, just a few moments later, Chris Wallace shifts this already unbalanced discussion to, you guessed it, abortion. I want to turn to another big story this week, and that was the Supreme Court hearing that big Mississippi abortion case, and the conservative majority of justices seemed to indicate that there was a possibility that they either might severely restrict Roe v. Wade or overturn it entirely. And the reaction to that was both immediate and intense. Take a look. We don't have to take a look to know that this is going to be a terrible discussion because we literally have just one side of the political perspective in Karl Rove, and we have a Fox News correspondent whose focus is not abortion, but national security. Even though there are abortion reporters. Yes, or legal experts, law reporters, Supreme anyone Court, in that even close people, to that realm. Reporters who follow the Supreme Court really closely, literally anything. Awful, just awful. So yes, maybe shading towards the beyond questionable. I just don't understand it. Like, what kind of booking is this? What are you doing? Maybe they just felt like, look, we don't want to do any remote interviews. So it's just whoever 
is accepting the invitation to Simi Valley in California. Whoever can get over there, that's who's going to be on the panel. You that's know, who we're he's interview. in California. They're not going to find any people who care about abortion here. So that's you know that's very true. They're just missing. <laughs> okay, Naomi. Let's move on to the first topic, which is abortion, and we're going to divide this conversation into a few key areas, which helped us kind of like organize our separate clips and points of discussion. We're going to talk about foundational information and facts. We'll talk about an analysis on the impact of the decision. We'll talk about good questions we heard and bad questions and answers we heard. So Naomi, do you want to start with the foundational information? Yeah. So I wanted to mention that there were practically zero foundational facts or ground setting prior to the interview prior to the single abortion interview that Jake Tapper had on State of the Union. Take a listen to how he opened up his interview with Governor Tate Reeves. Again, Tate Reeves is the governor of Mississippi, and Mississippi is the state that has the proposed law of a 15-week abortion ban that the Supreme Court just heard this week. The fate of Roe versus Wade, the landmark 1973 decision establishing a constitutional right to an abortion, is now in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court, as the conservative-leaning court seems poised to uphold a Mississippi law that would ban abortion after 15 weeks. This is one of the most significant challenges to abortion rights in decades. Joining us now to discuss the Republican governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves. Governor Reeves, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. And that's it. That is all the context you need to be able to understand this interview and understand what's happening. Apparently. Supposedly. Just garbage it is wow and there was no like package ahead of time no yeah no, no like pre, pre-packaged segment talking about it like this is one of the most important cases the supreme court has heard in a very long time on a not just on abortion but on like any issue to be able to potentially overturn setting you know a set precedent cnn has no reporters literally no reporters that can do just like a quick three-minute bit about what was discussed at that hearing or you know questions and you know notable commentary that was it's insane it, nothing Abs- it's just an absolute joke well i think this is maybe this is an example of once again state of the union falling down on this job this basic job of a sunday morning show by assuming that the viewers have all been watching cnn for the past few days and already have that information so they just kind of like just get to the interview, get to the interview. I mean, we've seen CNN as one of the shows that does that, right? Yes, yeah, CNN is the weakest in terms of context providing segments. Right. They rarely say, this is what happened, this is what we're seeing, these are the trends, you know, these are the facts, these are the experts. Very rarely do they spend the time in doing that, which I feel like the way they usually counter that is having one person from like both sides of an issue, Right. They're like, well, then if we're going to hear from, you know, an anti-choice person, then we're going to hear from a pro-choice person. But they didn't do that either. So it's even that much more insulting. It is insulting to the audience. Well, on my programs, there actually was pretty good, I felt, basic foundational information provided. Meet the Press did do one of those packages, as we mentioned. And Chuck Todd provided in that package some basic facts. Here's just A little bit of that. A majority of Americans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Just 32% favor overturning Roe, 58% oppose. If Roe is overturned, 12 states have explicit trigger laws, which would immediately ban abortion. 
Experts say some two dozen states are either certain or very likely to make the procedure illegal, and more could do so. That was 24 seconds. Did State of the Union not have 24 seconds to provide some of that could basic data? Could not spare it, Brendan. He needed it for his closing rant, okay? There was also excellent, excellent context provided on this week. I felt this week of the shows I looked at did the best job of talking about this issue. And part of that was, I should say a large part of that, was a panel, a special discussion that Raditz held with Terry Moran, senior national correspondent, and Kate Shaw, a constitutional law professor from the Cardoza School of Law. Take a listen to these two context-setting moments. So the first voice you'll hear is Kate Shaw. She is the constitutional law professor, and she's talking when she says they. She's talking about the Supreme Court justices and what they sounded like they were leaning towards during the arguments this week. It sounded as though they know they have the votes to do it and they are likely to do so. And we should say, Martha, that's a seismic change in American law for over 50 years. This has been a right the Constitution has protected. And it's never really been the case before that the Supreme Court has moved to overturn a case where that prior case announced a right. So essentially to take a right back, the court overturns its precedents relatively routinely, but never really in a case like this. And, and, and Terry, it, it's surprising because Supreme Court justices are supposedly chosen by presidents because they reflect the values of their constituents. A recent ABC News Washington Post poll says 60% of Americans say the court should uphold Roe v. Wade and 75% say the decision to have an abortion should be left to the woman and her doctor, not regulated by law. But this has been the Republican mission since Roe, to appoint Supreme Court justices that would overturn Roe versus Wade. They've tried and tried and tried for decades. The last time there was a majority of justices on the Supreme Court of the United States who had been appointed by Democratic presidents was May 14, 1969. Republicans have nominated 16 of the 20 justices since then, and some of those Republicans uh, were presidents who did not win majority votes. George Bush in his first term, of course, and and uh, Donald Trump. There's so much great history here in these two clips that are just a minute and a half long, less than that. We get an understanding of how long the American case law has been set up, another discussion of polling and where the country is, and then also from Terry Moran, what we just heard here, excellent data on the Supreme Court makeup yeah, and at least with also with Kate Shaw's context, the conclusion she was able to make was that there seemed to be okay with making some types of changes, right? That there will likely be some type of modification, maybe not even overturning completely Roe versus Wade, but maybe, you know, reexamining the Casey decision. And I think it's just a good example, like when you have an expert who has been covering the story, they don't need a lot of time to be able to kind of like give it to you in a really concise way. Absolutely. And you're referencing there Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirmed Roe v. Wade in the early 90s. Right. 93. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting about what Kate Shaw said here is that if the Supreme Court does choose to overturn Roe through this decision, it would be, quote, a seismic change in American law for over 50 years, end quote. And she talks about the Supreme Court taking back a right that they affirmed and how surprising and different that would be. That fact and the fact that 
Most Americans, 75%, think abortion should be left to the woman and her doctor. Sit really well with the reality that we've seen related to the standing of the Supreme Court by the American people, that the American people have never felt in Gallup polling as badly as they have about the Supreme Court and as disapprovingly, I should say, as they have about the Supreme Court in history since that polling has been going on, that the polling of the Supreme Court and their approval rating is lower than ever before. This suggests that the American people kind of understand that this court is not necessarily, if they go this route, reflecting where the people are. But the shows did explore the impact that this case could have on women in Mississippi and in across the U.S. more broadly. In the interview on State of the Union, again with Governor Tate Reeves, Jake Tapper notes that essentially, even before Roe versus Wade, women of means were able to get abortions and poor women couldn't. So the, the country has been here before, before 1973, and what happens in reality is women of means are still able to get abortions, uh, but poor women, young women, vulnerable women end up often seeking abortions in ways that can cause them severe harm, mutilation, if not death in some cases. Um, so do you acknowledge that this step will result in some women and almost almost certainly getting seriously hurt, some even dying? Well, I certainly uh, would hope that that would not be the case, but what I would tell you, uh, Jake, is that since Roe was enacted in 1973, there have been 62 million American babies uh, that have been killed through uh, this process. And, and I think uh, that those babies in, in their mother's womb don't have the ability to stand up for themselves. And that's why they have to have people like me and others around this nation that for years uh, have tried to stand up for unborn children. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we, we have to do everything we can as policymakers uh, to improve the quality of public health in our state. And, and when you look at this pandemic, there, there are a lot of uh, negatives that have come from the pandemic, but one of the, the hopefully silver linings that come out of um, dealing with the pandemic over the last year and a half is that uh, we have seen significant investments in infrastructure, uh, both from the state and federal level yeah. in our public health system. Is that all he says? Governor Reeves, yeah, apparently he's doing this for the kids. So not even acknowledging women at all? Yeah, the, but the people actually pregnant, they're just an afterthought in this man's mind. There was another point in this interview where Governor Reeves says something to the effect of like, he says something about unborn children. He's like, and the most important term there being the children. Like literally <laughs> not even acknowledging like the pregnancy affecting the, the host of the pregnancy itself. This is a question that is worth examining, right? That the fact that women across time have sought abortions for unplanned or unwanted pregnancies and some women were, have always been able to get it and some women haven't been able to or they get really dangerous ones. This is about as almost, I guess I would say, as hard hitting as it gets. I mean, I guess there's one other question that Jake Tapper has that's pretty hard, but it doesn't seem enough to kind of really explore this subject with the rigor it deserves. It's kind of my frustration. Like this is almost as hard as, as Governor Reeves gets. And that's it's not that much like, it's not really that data driven. It doesn't bring any like anecdotes of like what people are actually experiencing it doesn't say anything about like what clinics are doing now you know it, it, it's missing all of that and it could have it yeah it's definitely hugely missing I, I did do a quick check to see about this number the 62 million number and 
I did find a fact check about a, a data point from a few years ago. People were citing 50 million as the number. Um, that was a few years ago. Perhaps it has risen since then, but that is around the correct figure, at least, in terms of what Reeves is saying. Of abortions that have occurred. Yes, since 73. So speaking about the impact of this decision, Martha Raddatz asked that directly to Terry Moran during the panel I was talking about on this week. So Terry, if it is overturned, what happens in the states? Well, there are a dozen states and more with laws already on the books and ready to go. Trigger laws that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, they will ban abortion and, and there will be more following. No question about it. They'll test the limits if they try to, if they don't outright overturn Roe. They are lined up uh, to do this. And I think what you'll see is that abortion will be criminalized, not just in many states, but in entire regions of the country. Women will be hundreds of miles, more than hundreds of miles, thousands of miles maybe in, in, in some instances, very, very long distance, to get access to abortion. And we will have a patchwork of abortion rights, but it'll be more than that. In the South, from South Carolina all the way to Texas and Oklahoma and, and North up to Wisconsin, which has a trigger law uh, in the Midwest, abortion will be criminalized. So good for Raditz on asking the question, and Moran paints a picture of what the country might look like very seriously come next summer when this decision is passed down. But let's look at some kind of real worthwhile questions, Brendan, uh, on this topic. Yes. So like I mentioned, there was one other moment in the interview with Governor Reeves on State of the Union that I thought was pretty cutting from Jake Tapper. And in this moment, you hear Jake Tapper question this premise that Mississippi cares about children when the outcomes, the health outcomes for children, the children that are born, are pretty abysmal. Mississippi, of course, ranks 50th in the country in infant mortality. Mississippi is nearly last when it comes to childhood hunger. According to a recent study of what kids need to thrive from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, looking at economic well-being and education and health and family and community, Mississippi ranks 50th out of 50 for child well-being. How do you square those statistics about Mississippi with what you say about a culture of life? Well, first of all, when, when, you, when you look at that unborn baby in the womb and you consider it a, a human being, it really changes your perspective on, on lots of different things. But w with respect to the, the statistics that you, you quoted, when I ran for office and then ultimately in my first inaugural address, I made it very clear uh, to the people in my state that I believed in my heart that I was elected not to try to hide our problems or not to try to hide our challenges but to try to fix them and I perfectly acknowledge that many of those statistics in terms of health outcomes in our state um, were underperforming relative to to other states ac across the nation and it's incumbent upon all of us to to work to pass policies uh, to change that and you know when you look at uh, health outcomes uh, whether it's uh, prenatal care or or other areas, uh, we have a ways to, to go and that hasn't become um, effective in the last year and a half, but it's happened over 200 years um, of our state's existence mm -hmm. and we're going to do everything we can uh, to improve upon that. Not one example of one way they're working to improve any one of those many, many statistics that Tapper provided. Zero. Zero specifics about, you know, improving child hunger, child literacy, school outcomes, ec economic outcomes, just infant mortality. Like, you could 
if he had one good statistic on some or one initiative that was successful in Mississippi, this or would be even, the time to talk about it. Or even that attempted to tackle any of these issues. You could have just named one program. Right. You could literally, like, on Friday had said, we're starting a new program to tackle childhood hunger and malnutrition and infant mortality and i'm going to cut this little ribbon and you could just say to tapper you know just this week we cut our ribbon on our new national you know statewide program it would it could have been that easy now it, that would have been empty but it would have been something it would have been something it would have been, been, been better an than this this non-answer good for tapper and the team for doing this research any notable questions stand out to you on the shows you looked at brendan yeah, there were some really good ones. Uh, so Chuck Todd asked this question at the start of his interview. I should mention he interviewed somebody from the Democratic side, somebody from the Republican side, a Republican senator, a Democratic senator. So I appreciated some balance. Novel idea for Fox News Sunday to consider. And the first person he had interviewed was Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar from the state of Minnesota. And one of his early questions was this. What do you make of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's argument that the court should be neutral on abortion and essentially saying it should be up to the politicians? And I want to point something out. There's really only three countries in the world that have abortion rights that were sort of uh, given to them by the courts. It's us, Canada and Mexico. Most Pretty significant other, countries. No doubt. Most other countries, though, have done it either via their legislatures or via referendum. Should this be done? that way is leaving it to the courts put us in a more vulnerable position on this i would turn this the other way 50 years of precedent as elena kagan uh, pointed out 50 years of decisions and court decisions part of the very fabric of women's existence in this country this is how our country protected rights Mm -hmm. and now they're willing to just flip it on its head and so what is the answer the answer may well be doing it through the political process now. I don't think that's the right thing to do, but it may be the way to do it. And I think the best way to do it is not a patchwork of state laws, Mm -hmm. but to put it, codify Roe v. Wade, put it into law. And we even have some pro-choice Republicans that have signaled interest in doing that. So I thought this was a really interesting question from Chuck Todd. He, of course, takes the idea of Justice Kavanaugh basically Kavanaugh saying, hey, the court shouldn't have to deal with this. Let the politicians figure it out. But then does, you know, the research on it. And this is compelling research. And it's an interesting question about how the U.S. is an outlier among countries in protecting this right through the courts rather than through national law. And this is a great intro to Chuck Todd's broader discussion with Amy Klobuchar, which is leading towards, look, you are are a law maker. So if that is the case, if the courts invalidate this right, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to follow in the footsteps of many other countries and try to protect this right through a bill rather than through a court decision? I think the answer is putting it into federal law. Of course, the ultimate answer would be to uphold 50 years of precedent and the court doing the right thing. All right. This bill needs 60 votes in the Senate. Is, is there a way besides getting rid of the filibuster to lower that threshold? Could you could you find a way with Medicaid or Medicare funding, different ways to make it a 50 vote threshold? Well, as you know, we're looking at the rules of the Senate right now and mm-hmm. in the context of the all important issue, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, the bill I lead that has every Democrat in the Senate supporting it. And one of the things we've realized is that I would abolish the filibuster 
But even if you keep the filibuster in place, over time, there have been 160-some carve-outs to the filibuster. Mm -hmm. The rules have changed over and over. Even Robert Byrd himself said that rules should change to fit the circumstances of their time. how would you change the rule for codifying Roe? Well, this would be some change to the Senate rules, and it most likely would not be uh, this particular issue. Right now, we're really focused on voting rights. You think voting but rights it would is the be, carve it would be a be standing filibuster, a way to actually put this out for there for the mm-hmm. American public so that people would be required to be in the chamber and actually debate things and come up with an outcome at some point. These two different questions, just to kind of go back to the previous question around most countries have their legislators codify or protect a woman's right to choose. I get where they're coming from, but also a lot of legislative bodies don't have the same bizarro rules that our Senate has. And so... Right. Certainly, country systems defer. Right. I I don't know. It feels a little itchy to me. Like, we lean on the Supreme Court to kind of give the final ruling on so many things. I don't think it's unheard of for people in this country to expect the Supreme Court to protect a precedent that has been in place for 50 years, as Klobuchar mentions. In terms of, on the other side, like, what is the Senate going to do? Like, yes, I think, <laughs> yeah, she is a lawmaker and legislators should be doing more legislating. And so I think it's worthwhile to explore, like, why doesn't the Senate have any teeth in this whatsoever? And you're just kind of like praying to the gods that the Supreme Court gets it right. And so, yeah, it's it's just a very fine line that I don't, I find myself appreciating the, like, why doesn't the Senate do anything? Why doesn't the Senate do more line of questioning? Because I think you can apply that to so many issues. I find that line of questioning more compelling and more worth kind of my time and reflection than other countries do it other ways. Yeah, but I I, I felt like his initial question, which if we get, you know, get to what his initial question was, was should this, the codification of Roe, be done that way? through legislature or referendum. I think that was his question. And it was, I think it was a good There's been a national referendum on anything. Well, no, clearly, but he's talking about how it was codified in other countries through a referendum. He didn't use the word referendum. I was just referring to his, when he said this, what this meant. Okay, okay. But yes, I appreciate him doing what we have asked of the Sunday show hosts in every interview with an elected official, which is hold them accountable for using their power to reach the goals that they say they are going to try to reach, right? And he did the same thing with Republican Senator Mike Braun. He is the senator from Indiana. Take a listen. All right, so you want to see a ban on abortion. How would you enforce a ban on abortion? You're going to let that up to the individual states, and you might find that right mix. I'm not saying we got it right in Indiana. I'm saying it, uh, it may not, it's not right in New York. Maybe you find that happy medium. What's that your place? What's to your idea? More people are going to say, hey. what's your idea? My idea is that you is with what's happened with technology. When you look at all the things that we know now about uh, the unborn, it needs to be different. It needs to be different from where it is. And I don't have the silver bullet. I don't intend to put it out there. I just think you've got a better idea of getting where you need to be, not trying to homogenize it at the national level. It sounds like you're uncomfortable with figuring out how you would enforce the ban, because I think that's a question. Do you criminalize abortion? Would you criminalize it? 
I'm perfectly comfortable with doing it, just not at the level where everybody's got to live with the same thing. And when you talk about criminalizing it, then all you're doing is taking this to a logical extreme that you'll never get to anyway. We just need to take it off of where it is, send it back to the states. Is this man for real? Yeah. I mean, basically the whole interview is kind of like this. Like Braun, Braun just wanted to say... I, I don't want to deal with it. It shouldn't be a national... He, he sounds like he and Kavanaugh are aligned. Like, we shouldn't have to deal with this. Keep pushing, pushing it down the road. First of all, where is the freaking conversation about this patchwork proposal of abortion law and abortion access across the U.S., that that is, like, a reasonable solution or a reasonable compromise to abortion? That makes literally no sense that a, a woman's right to privacy and autonomy can vary so widely depending on where she's living. That's one. Two, when you see people like this who can't say the word abortion or who can't say women won't be criminalized because it, it, like he's not sure where he would actually stand. Like These are people you cannot trust to actually make a stand on anything. And it just it drives me crazy when men talk about abortion without using actual terms without saying women without saying people who are pregnant without saying fetuses without saying like any like actual medical terms of pregnancy like it's just this like glossy like women get pregnant and then there are children and they're unborn and then they're born and it's just like <laughs> pregnancy is brutal on a woman's body and our healthcare system is a joke and so forced pregnancy overall is a national embarrassment if we go there. So it just, this is a conversation that is not saying much, is my whole point. And like, why even bother? So you would say this Republican senator should not have been interviewed at all, is what you're saying? This Republican senator is a joke. And who has power? Who, yes. That he has, should be held accountable, no? Yes, blah, 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 blah. Yes, he has power or whatever. What I'm saying is he doesn't know this issue. And I think... But he doesn't have to know it to have power over it. I understand that. But by putting him on this show and asking him about it, you're kind of expecting him to be able to answer questions about it. So that's kind of my frustration. I think Chuck Todd could use more specific language. I think he is, you know, says, would you criminalize abortion? Criminalize who? To the person who is pregnant? To providers? To doctors? Like, right. to people no abetting there. like the or aiding in, as it is right now in Texas? Like... There's a lot of different ways you can criminalize it. So it's just, it talks in generics, which I don't appreciate. Well, it's interesting you note that because actually Chuck Todd was trying to get beyond the generics. Kind of the point of his interview was to try to nail down Mike Braun on where he actually stands in the specifics of this area. Uh, take a listen to this question, for example. So should when, when do you believe abortion should be available? Because you're going to have to vote on these issues now. Every elected official in the so, country is going to have to state very specifically now. You know, a lot of times elected officials have been able to hide behind Roe. Either you're for it or against it. But now you got to get to specifics. So in your view, when should abortion be legal or be available? So in my case, when you believe in the sanctity of life, you want abortions to be uh 
eliminated from the landscape if you can. You, you're also in the con- context of reasonability. And the fact is, regardless of what any one individual, maybe with the point of view of mine or of Amy's, you're not going to settle it in a homogenized way. And that needs to reflect itself throughout states and whatever one's opinion is, whatever you're trying to do politically, uh, why try to do it at the national level? We generally don't do things well here anyway. And on something as contentious as this, it seems like it would make common sense. It'd be practical and not political to send it back to the states and let every state do what they want to do and uh, live with it. And if you don't like it, then go to work within those legislatures. It was never enumerated in the Constitution that this would be something that would be done at the federal level. And it takes the decibel level, the caustic nature of politics, as we see it here in D.C., takes it to another place. So both there and elsewhere in the panel, Todd talks about how he's trying to confront people like Braun with the idea that now you are actually going to have to say more than, oh, I'm for or against Roe. So what does that world actually look like? Get to the specifics, and Braun is is not willing to do it. I suppose. I suppose this is a bit more in-depth than what we had just seen. But overall, I'm expecting journalists to bring the specificity into their questions themselves and not expecting politicians to do it for them. Because then, at that point, you give them the power. You give them the power to either reframe the conversation to how they want to or to weasel their way out the way they want to and like hold on to the power you have in your interview of course that kind of like specific questions that i'm thinking of require a lot of work and require research and require for your a lot of pre-interviews with experts and you know i get that that is more labor intensive but it is so much more enriching to a viewer well as you say that naomi uh, i know that there's another section here, the final section on the abortion issue, which is bad questions slash answers slash, I think you said questions that are missing. Yes, I added that too. Yes. So was there anything you wanted to bring up about what you felt was missing? I just was surprised that there wasn't any actual questions and comments about what we heard from the justices themselves on Wednesday. Like, we don't get a lot of audio from the Supreme Court on very controversial topics like it's ripe for discussion and for exploration and we didn't really we didn't really see that so you know whether it's chief justice roberts and how he's like searching everywhere for a compromise so the supreme court doesn't have to make a a firm you know kind of extreme decision in either direction right or if it's like the liberal justices and their exploring of kind of the the rights to privacy and autonomy and and how they could implicate be implicated in other cases or you know justice barrett who seems fine with forced pregnancy because there's haven laws i mean there's so much to discuss that it's wild that those didn't come up in the shows yeah i will say some of my shows did have some clips from the justices but they were short and that raises another issue which is very rarely do we see Supreme Court justices interviewed on the Sunday shows. Justice Breyer actually was interviewed a few weeks ago, I believe. He was promoting his book. It was like book. three months ago or okay. four months ago. I don't know. It's hard to keep track of time. But he was promoting a book and not super held accountable. So why didn't you retire? I didn't retire because I decided on balance I wouldn't retire. I, I, 
I am very much of the mind that Supreme Court justices should be on the Sunday shows as much as any senator is on the Sunday shows, and that they should be held accountable for their decisions and their thinking because they are public servants. We pay for them, and they must be held accountable for how they're doing their jobs. And frankly, they're... From the staff they hire yes, and the, you know, like... Absolutely. Robust examination of how they do their work. Not just when they're getting their job. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, hardly when they're getting their job either. But that's a past Polylog episode. Yeah, so I just also wanted to note that a couple other resources that I found extremely helpful. So Consider This had, which is like an extra feature of All Things Considered, had a really good segment by Audie Cornish that came out about this abortion case. The Daily had an episode as well. I think it was on Thursday, or maybe it was Friday. Excellent episode. The 19th has excellent coverage, has you know reporters just on reproductive rights and reproductive justice issues and so by no means do i think this is like the standard or i think this is the only thing that's available to to listeners so when when something is really weak like what we saw today at least for the shows that i watched it's i just would underscore how important it is to be able to kind of find resources that you do find value that do give you something to kind of think about and reflect on for for the coming week Absolutely. So, Naomi, we have a little bit to highlight here on the pandemic on Omicron. Yeah, so I just briefly wanted to note that Face the Nation only discussed the pandemic Omicron. They didn't talk about the abortion case. They didn't talk about the shooting in Michigan. They didn't talk about, I don't know, any other kind of national issue. And it just, I don't know if it's actually a really good use of time. There's still so much we don't know about this new variant and... To spend the entirety of the show with Margaret Brennan's, you know, hard hitting kind of no BS approach in which is usually her journalistic style that I really appreciate. It just it kind of implies this variant is like this very, very dangerous thing that we have to freak out about. And we just don't know that yet. Right. And And no, and no matter how many hard hitting questions you ask, we don't have the answers yet. Right. And like. I just think it's a little irresponsible, to be honest, that this is all they covered. You know, hopefully I'm right and I'm not wrong, but it just, it was approached in the same severity when COVID first came out in March 2020. And everyone, all the other shows were like maybe devoting like 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. And Face the Nation was covering it like full blast. Right. And we thought it was kind of a little over the top. Turns out they were right. <laughs> they were totally on the money that this was yes. like going to blow up our world. But I don't think that's the case now. And from everything what I'm seeing from infectious disease experts, this tone feels a lot like fear mongering. And it kind of made me itchy and rubbed me the wrong way. Well, and you also have to ask, why did they choose to pass on the abortion story this week? Right. Why did they pass on the Supreme Court story? Maybe they thought, look, these are just oral arguments. We don't know what the Supreme Court's actually going to do. We'll save that for June. And yet, you know what? These Supreme Court justices spoke in a lot more words than we have data on Omicron right now. (laughs) You can predict what these Supreme Court justices are going to do a lot easier than you can predict what Omicron is right now. We've got a lot more data on them than we do on Omicron. And also, the Supreme Court story isn't a story you can just put in the freezer and, you know, take out in June when the Supreme Court decision comes down, June 2022, because as Chuck Todd was asking Senator Klobuchar, there may very well 
be legislative action taken well before June, or at least attempted before June, that is going to be huge politically in the next few months. So you can't assume that just because the Supreme Court decision isn't coming on down till June, that it's not going to be relevant until June. But Naomi, I imagine there were moments in the episode that were at least worth highlighting somewhat on the topic. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me the most was this question on the severity of Omicron. And every public health expert, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Murphy, Dr. Collins, you know, from all the leading national health organizations, all of, you know, Dr. Fauci, they're all saying we're going to have to wait and see. Was just kind of the only answer I was expecting today. But of course, in the interview with Dr. Gottlieb, we got something more that kind of explores why the issue of severity is actually a lot more complicated than I think people may be realizing. Specifically, how the concentration of Omicron in South Africa kind of skews the data a little bit about severity. Take a listen and I'll respond on the other side. We have heard from the administration there are a couple of dozen Omicron cases now here in the United States. Dr. Fauci said this morning, too early still, but it does not look there's a great degree of of severity to it. Is it too early to say that? It's too early to say that. Um, right now, the infections, the best data is coming out of South Africa because they have more, they simply have more cases. And right now, all the evidence is that a lot of the people who are presenting with infection from this new variant are people who've been previously infected with Delta. Remember, South Africa had a very devastating Delta wave. Um, probably more than 90% of people in South Africa who are unvaccinated were infected with Delta. So we don't know whether or not this new strain is inherently um, less virulent. So it's a, a more moderate strain of COVID. It's not causing as severe illness or whether it's presenting that way simply because it's infecting people who already have some pre-existing immunity. So they have some protection from COVID. So they're getting infected, but they're not getting as sick. There was one study out of the Tishwani uh, Hospital, which is in Pretoria, a very hard hit part of South Africa that came out yesterday. They looked at about 166 patients who've been admitted to the hospital since the beginning of the epidemic in South Africa. They found 38 who are infected with COVID. Most were incidental pickups. They were people who were presenting to the hospital for an obstetrical reason or surgical reason who were found to be COVID positive on admission. Of the nine people who had COVID pneumonia in the hospital, all were unvaccinated. So the question right now is whether or not this is reinfecting people who have Delta immunity and haven't been vaccinated or whether it's going to also infect people uh, who have who've been vaccinated. There's some reason to believe the vaccines could be more protective than just immunity acquired through natural infection from Delta. That's going to be a critical question we need to figure out in the coming weeks because we have some important policy decisions that we'll need to make depending on the answer. So I thought that was really interesting and I hadn't really quite connected that the fact that South Africa had such a severe Delta outbreak these last few months will impact the data that we're going to be finding and learning about Omicron, right? And so other places that didn't have that same recent infection, you know, outbreak of Delta may see the community response to Omicron a little bit differently. Yeah, this is a great piece of information from Gottlieb and Framing, and it kind of sets up an interesting comparison that I that I found between an interview on this week and an interview on Fox News Sunday, both with public health leaders in the Biden administration. So the first is a question to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, and 
What I want to bring your attention to is that both in the interview on this week and the interview on Fox News Sunday, the host brings up data about South Africa, from South Africa, and what it might mean for Omicron. Take a listen to how Walensky responds to it. And then we're going to compare it with how the Surgeon General responded. The first voice you'll hear is CDC Director Walensky. Then you'll hear Martha Raddatz ask a question, and then we'll hear, hear Walensky's answer. What we do, don't yet know is how transmissible it will be, how well our vaccines will work, whether it will lead to more severe disease. South, South Africa studies say about two times more transmissible. If it is as bad as it may be, even if it's not severe disease. What do the next six months look like? You know, I think the next six months really depend on how we mobilize together to do the things that we know work. We know from a vaccine standpoint that the more mutations a single variant has, the more immunity you really need to have in order to combat that variant, which is why right now we're really pushing to get more people vaccinated and more people boosted to really boost that immunity in every single individual. We're really hopeful that our vaccines will work in a way that even if they don't prevent disease entirely, prevent infection entirely, that they can work to prevent severe disease and keep people out of the hospital. So notably, the thing I want to bring your attention to is is that Martha Raddatz cites this data that the South Africa studies say Omicron is two times more transmissible. Walensky does not correct that data, does not bring that data into context, just goes on to answer the question. In contrast, listen to what happens when the Surgeon General is asked that question, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, on Fox News Sunday. Doctor, it's been a little bit more than a week since the world first learned about this Omicron variant, and, and I want to go over some of the initial findings so far. The variant is spreading more than twice as fast as Delta. It's three times more likely to cause reinfections among people who've had COVID, and it shares genetic code with a common cold. So compared to a week ago when we first learned the name Omicron, how much more have we learned about the transmissibility of this disease, the severity of the disease from Omicron, and the potential that it could evade and beat the vaccines that we now have. Well, Chris, we have we continue to learn a lot uh, about Omicron. We've seen certainly that there has been spread around the world and in our country. This is something we expected. We've seen this with other variants. And we've been in close dialogue with our colleagues in South Africa on a frequent basis to understand what they are seeing. Uh, Chris, even though they are certainly seeing cases go up, they have seen an increase in hospitalizations, they have cautioned us, uh, as we have tried to caution others, not to draw immediate conclusions from initial data sets or from anecdotes uh, that you hear. So to the question of whether the increased spread is being driven by you know, greater transmissibility or whether it's being driven by a different sensitivity to our vaccine protections or protection from prior infection, the exact mix there of contributors is not known. Very, very different answer there from the Surgeon General, cautioning the audience not to assume that these numbers from South Africa are things that we're going to be able to apply to our own country. And it was so interesting because I took a look at this week first, and the minute I heard Rochelle Walensky not correct that data point, I thought, and I actually wrote in my notes, like, very interesting topic. When should the CDC correct the data point? And then, lo and behold, on 
Fox News Sunday, the Surgeon General did correct the data point, which they should be doing. You shouldn't have to listen to experts across three different shows to be able to understand the state of public health communications from our national government. Yes. Not great. There was also a really interesting conversation that Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation had with Francis D'Souza. He's the CEO of Illumina. And Illumina is one of the leading companies that identifies and tracks the COVID variants through genomic sequencing, which is really important. And we kind of got started really late in this country doing aggressive genomic sequencing to understand how the virus was changing and where. But Margaret Brennan tried to kind of understand why this variant seemed to be so much more threatening and and where it seemed different from previous variants we've seen. In terms of how this virus mutated, there's speculation that it either jumped back and forth between animals and humans, or that there was something unique to uh, its mutation within immunocompromised individuals. Do you have any insight into why Omicron seems to be so uniquely threatening? Yeah, what really is surprising about the the genome of, of this variant is that it is so heavily mutated. So we have over 50 new mutations, 30 of which are in the S gene, which, which makes the S protein. And, and that's important. But, but the fact that there are so many that we haven't seen before coming from a virus that only mutates two to three times a month tells us that it's been somewhere mutating for a long time and we haven't seen it. And so there are a number of hypotheses. One, it could have been uh, as part of a chronic illness that somebody who was perhaps immunocompromised had over a year, and so they weren't ever really able to clear the virus, uh, and so they had it and it was mutating, and then for some reason uh, it started transmitting again over the last couple of weeks. Or it could have been, as you said, you know, transmitted to an animal, if, uh, mutated there, and then come back into humans, or it could have been uh, circulating in a part of the global population that's uh, just not being sequenced. And so we're trying to figure out you know, where it was for so long mutating uh, undetected. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's important is that the mutations we're seeing, the 30 mutations in the on the uh, S gene are important because the S gene codes for the S protein, and that's important for two reasons. One, that is how the virus interacts with human cells and gets into human cells. And, right. and we've seen with other variants of concerns that certain mutations make uh, variants more transmissible. And so there's an indication, and we're seeing that with some of the early data, that this variant might be more transmissible. But the second reason it's important is that the uh, S protein is actually a target for some of the vaccines. And so the question now is, is it mutated enough that it would escape some of the vaccines? So there's a lot there, but I thought it was really interesting to kind of take a step back to understand why there might be so many mutations on this variant. What are the settings in which so many mutations could occur? And occur undetected and then spread again. Furthermore, I think it gives even more context to understand the explanation that we heard from Dr. Collins last week about all the mutations on the spike protein and how that may affect the efficacy or the strength of our vaccines that we have so far. And so just, you know, kind of builds on that knowledge of like, oh, you know, I don't have to become like a vaccine or, you know, virus (laughs) public health expert to have some better understanding as to why this variant is different than the previous one or why we're approaching it differently or just, you know, giving me as like someone who's taking this pandemic very seriously and has someone who's not eligible to be vaccinated in my family, like some context as to how this variant 
might affect my community in ways that other ones haven't. Absolutely. And this type of question is foundational and important because it leads to potential policy questions. It should lead to policy questions, which is how do we stop this thing from mutating again like this? And Francis D'Souza provides some ideas. Okay, maybe it was in an immunocompromised person who had COVID for over a year. Well, what can we do to help protect immunocompromised people from A, getting COVID, and B, if they have it, from having to endure it for such a long period of time? Are there any types of therapeutics that could be available to help them fight it? Or do we need to find ways to safely quarantine folks in those situations so that they are not spreading that potentially mutated virus further? And then the other possibility, as he mentioned, was that this may be developed in a population that was not being sequenced more. Well, then how can we make sequencing more readily available globally, not just in the U.S., but globally, so that these types of mutations can be tracked over time and we as a world can be ready for them when they come or stop them in their tracks before they get worse? So this is really important information that I hope is sparking someone's thoughts to stop it from happening. Of course, to sequence something, you have to at least test it. Testing is where it starts. And there was a really good exchange on Meet the Press on the issue of testing. Now, we have said, and it's becoming now our rallying cry again and again, that whenever you have someone who has political power, you should ask them questions about how they're using that power, whether they're using it well, and doing what they say they're going to do. And that's not just about elected politicians, but about public health leaders. These public health leaders shouldn't be treated as subject matter experts, which they are, but also as people who are responsible for making this pandemic end sooner. And here is one such important question Chuck Todd asked Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health. I ask you about testing. I put together a, a mash of all the promises we've been made about rapid, fast testing that was going to be available. Let me play a little bit of it for you. The FDA approved the first at-home COVID-19 test kit. And we continue to approve new tests, including an at-home test. I use the Defense Production Act to increase production of rapid tests including those that you can use at home. This winter, we're going to make free at-home tests more available to Americans than ever before. Look, testing has been, I feel like it's, it's, you know, the anchor that we've been dragging from the very beginning here. But what has made it so difficult to fulfill that promise? Well, we have come a long way, let's be fair. Chuck, and NIH has been in this in a big way. There are now eight home tests that are out there, approved by FDA, available. Go to your pharmacy, you'll see them on the shelves. And those are easy, like the one I just showed you. 15 minutes and you get an answer. Mm -hmm. They are pricey, and that's one of the things the president's trying to do about this right now, announcing uh, this week that basically if you get one of these home tests, you can file with your insurance company and get reimbursed for it. And if you don't have that kind of coverage, uh, some 50 million tests being distributed out in places like food banks and community health centers, 
uh, to make it possible for people to have access to them for free. We at NIH, we're running pilot tests yeah. in seven states to see what happens. If you just make it possible for people to order these for free from Amazon, we'll see how that plays out. I get it. We ought to have testing as easily accessible as possible and as cheap as possible because it is a good way to protect yourself. I have so much to say about this in terms of the availability of testing. I think getting tests reimbursed through your insurance is such, <laughs> I know I've been saying this a lot, it's such a joke. Like, why? <laughs> and you you do a lot of reimbursements in our household. I do. It's like endless. I do, correction, I do all of our <laughs> insurance well, yeah, yeah. reimbursements. And, and that's a lot. There's a lot. And it's such a mess. It's horrible. It's so annoying. And like, I have a big one that I have to like appeal and I don't understand why they won't approve it and all this stuff. It, it takes time and effort that is just like completely unnecessary. It's basically, it, it's like the rebate where they're like, oh, here's a coupon for your rebate. You know, you buy something from Best yeah, Buy. Yeah, like your contacts where they're like a $50 rebate. I don't think I've ever actually gotten that $50 yeah. rebate for my annual like supply of contacts or actually, I think one time I did get a gift card and then I lost that freaking gift card. Well, gift card's one thing, but the rebate is like, you have to find it on here and make a little envelope. No, I did the in. rebate thing and then like the rebate was like oh, a $50. It came. No, it gave me like a $50 gift card or like Visa gift card, oh, I think. Oh, right. It's or not it, even real money. Yeah. And, and then I don't know where it went. And anyway, the idea that you're doing me a favor by making me do more reimbursements through my insurance like, makes me so livid. But the other thing is, is that like the rest of the world is not doing this. Most developed exactly. countries have tests available for like $2.99, $3.99, not two for $25, which is what they cost in this country. And so like this answer 20 months in, 22 months into a freaking pandemic is unacceptable. Like, maybe I would have tolerated it like six months in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but, I, but I, are you kidding me? Two years later, you can't figure out how to make this affordable and available and routine. Yeah. Like, it, I, just I, test everywhere. And like, they just say, like, people before you gather, do tests. And it's like, well, how? Like, if a family wants to get like two or three households wants to gather for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or for some holiday and there's like eight to ten people who want to get together, that's not an insignificant amount of money that you're ex asking them to dish out for testing. Right. And we, we had a situation a few months ago, we know, where a friend was potentially exposed to COVID with their family and needed an at-home test. And it literally had to be shipped across the country because none were available. Right. It's and the availability of at-home tests are is inconsistent across the country. Yes. Not only were they expensive, they're sometimes not there, or at least that, that was the case a few months ago. I have actually a perfect example of exactly what you're saying here, Naomi, because I wanted to point out, although I appreciated Chuck Todd's flurry of clips here, what did he call it? Not a bevy of clips, not a flurry of clips, a mashup of clips. His question actually was, what's made it so difficult to fulfill that promise? It's not a super bad question, but I wish he would say, like, what are we doing differently that other countries have gotten right? Because there are other countries that have gotten it right, as you mentioned, Naomi. Here's a great example of it. This is from a report from CBS this morning, just a few months ago, looking at at-home testing that is completely routine in the United Kingdom. 
In the early days of COVID, scientists posed an interesting question. What if everybody, and I mean everybody, could just test themselves at home, whether they're going to school or weddings or a big party? Well, that's been a reality here for months, and getting a test kit is literally this easy. Hi. Can I please get a uh, COVID test kit? Of course. Would you like one or two? Uh, two, please. Sure. There you go. Thank you. How much do I owe you? They're free. Free? Yeah. Thank you. Free. If you can even find one in the U.S., they're $12 for one test. These kits contain seven rapid antigen tests, and they're unlimited. Yeah, so when he says unlimited there, he means that he could have walked out of the store, put those two tests in his car or his bag or whatever, and walked back in and gotten two more without showing any ID. Again, we've been in this pandemic almost 22 months. It's exhausting how bad we are at it. We being America, for full clarification. And the voice you heard there was Charlie Degata, CBS News correspondent. So great job for Chuck Todd pointing this out, but the joke of our testing situation needs to be further interrogated more regularly on the Sunday shows. Yeah, and especially when we're talking about like the real use case in the interview on Face the Nation with Governor Ned Lamont. He's the governor of Connecticut. Margaret Brennan had this kind of back and forth about with this new variant, you know, President Biden and, you know, a lot of states really don't want to go back down to lockdowns, especially for school shutdowns and virtual schools and they want to keep kids in school as much as possible but to do that you have to have really robust testing and a lot of school districts can't afford it or it's kind of really patchwork or it's up to the parents to to do the testing at home and so like it's a kind of a perfect example right of saying like if we want to kind of get through this next variant with life feeling as normal ish as it can be in a pandemic like Testing has to be readily accessible. Maybe in time for the next variant. Oh my God. Don't even Omicron? say it. <laughs> Hopefully not. Aye, aye, aye. All right, Naomi. Well, that was a huge episode here. Episode 251. So much to say. So little time. Yeah, I know. And we, we were, people don't know this, but we were left and right cutting clips that we had already selected to make this more streamlined. Did it feel streamlined? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for Polylog this week and every week. We encourage you to make your dialogue count. And this week, we encourage you to... I have a quest- I-, I have a challenge. It's inspired by our conversation about abortion and kind of getting to specifics and talking about things in real tangible ways. And it doesn't have to be abortion specifically, but if there is a subject that people are talking about a lot in your world at work at home or you know it seems like there's a lot of opinions but not a lot of kind of like meat and substance to it like maybe have that conversation with someone who knows it deeply to just have kind of a little bit more of an understanding or kind of like a more of a discovery conversation like something that you hear a lot about but maybe don't know it very well be curious, curious enough and open enough to have a discovery conversation about it. Excellent challenge. We're curious cats over here. <laughs> we'll encourage it all the time. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to like it or rate it 
on the Apple Podcast app. If you have, if you want to share your curiosity with us, we would highly welcome it. You are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Soto Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at B Steidel, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.